Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we'll learn why scientists and engineers are keen on using high-temperature superconductors in nuclear fusion reactors. And we'll also chat about how China has emerged as a global science superpower. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to learn about the latest breakthroughs in electrochemistry? The 240th ECS meeting brings together the most active researchers in academia, government, and industry, professionals, and students to engage, discuss, and innovate in the areas of electrochemistry and solid-state science and technology. Michael Hecht from the MIT Haystack Observatory delivers the ECS lecture, Electrolysis on Mars, MOXIE and the Perseverance Mission, along with award presentations on fuel cells for affordable zero-emissions vehicles, pitting corrosion, and future directions for batteries as guidance for future innovation. The all-virtual event runs from October 10th to October 14th. Attendee registration is free. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash 240 to learn more. The Chinese economy has boomed over the past two decades, and the country is investing some of its newfound wealth in science and technology. I'm joined by my Physics World colleague, Michael Banks, who has covered the rise and rise of Chinese science for a decade. Hi, Michael. Hi, Hamish. So, Michael, would you agree that China is well on its way to becoming a scientific superpower? Or maybe it's there already. Yeah, I think I think it's right to say that you know China is already um, a scientific superpower. Um, I mean, if you look at the in terms of publications um, that it's produced in the last decade or so, um, around ten years ago, it was already surpassing the US in terms of the number of publications that researchers in the country produced. And I think it's like well on its way now to you know massively over- overcoming that. So I think it's fair to say that the that China, in terms of publications, is already well ahead of many other countries. And there was a little bit of criticism that it was quantity over quality a number of years ago, that kind of criticism came about. But I think as we, as we know, you know, we look at you know, papers that are coming from, from top journals and we see a lot of Chinese-based scientists who are producing those papers. So I think it's definitely the case now that it's quantity is as well as quality. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I've noticed. I mean, I, I you know, I, I tend to look at the sort of top flight journals for ideas for uh, research updates for the Physics World website. And uh, j- just over the maybe the last two or three years, the number of, of papers from from Chinese institutes, uh, it's just gone bananas, really, hasn't it? I mean, it's an incredible uptick in really high quality science. That's right, and especially in cert- some certain areas, say, f- say for example, quantum physics, um, 
you know, basically you could say now China is, is actually leading the way. It's certainly got a number of top research groups there who are producing, you know, papers in top flight journals, you know, almost on a monthly basis. So, yeah, and there's definitely a lot of quality research being done in China, that's for sure. And in the years that you've been covering physics in China, um, what changes have you noticed in how science is done there? Um, I think for me, it's uh, more kind of the breadth of research that's being done there in China. You know, maybe like a decade or so ago, China maybe had, in terms of facilities, they had um, a number of you know world class facilities. And and as I've been covering research in China for the past decade, certainly the the number of you know world class facilities now has just grown um, in huge numbers. You know, we have say for example, there's a neutron spallation source that's in Dongguan in southern China. Um, you know, that's kind of a world-leading facility for neutron science. And also China has uh, built a number of um, you know, top-class synchrotrons in the last few years. And that's not to mention then other exper- experimental facilities in, you know, that's looking at particle physics, dark matter, um, you know, looking for detections of dark matter particles and things like that. So definitely in terms of the the breadth of research, that's certainly something that um, you know, it's kind of surprising almost how quick that's uh, developed in the past 10 years or so. Yeah, it's, it's funny you should mention big science facilities because I'm, I'm just putting the finishing touches on, the, on Physics World's big science briefing, which is going to be published next month. And, and we've got a special article about facilities in China that are currently being built for facilities. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's incredible that, uh, that, that, that these four major facilities are all being built at the same time. And I'm sure there are other facilities that are being built in China as well. Um, you know, it seems like the Chinese government is really investing its money in infrastructure at the moment. That's right, because there's actually that proposal to build a 100-kilometer particle accelerator, that basically like a, you know, a souped-up Large Hadron Collider um, in China, which kind of is... is it's proposed a few years back. There was a, a design review that kind of happened, and there's not so much going on at the moment in terms of you know it being green lighted for development. A part of that reason is because China is building so many other facilities that they just don't have the number of people capable to build this huge kind of particle collider. You know, basically all the design people are you know building these other synchrotrons, etc. So you know maybe maybe that'll happen a few years down the line when there's actually more capability for the engineers and researchers to you know get behind a big project like that yeah that that that, that is interesting i mean i think you know some people in the west actually go so far as saying that maybe china is the only country that could actually build a a, a mega collider to succeed the large hadron collider yeah that's right in terms of budget for sure you know maybe it is only china who could actually pull off the budget required to build a huge hundred kilometer collider but who knows i mean CERN have a uh, a similar design for a 100-kilometer collider. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see who goes ahead with that. If, if anyone goes ahead with that, who knows? And, Michael, you've just published Physics World's seventh briefing on science in China. And, and this latest issue has a strong space theme, and uh, it includes an article about China's first space station, which will be completed next year. How is that mission going? Yeah, that's right. So this is the seventh um, special report on China that we've published. Um, so this kind of program began in 2011, and that was our first special report. And then from 2016, we've had a, a special report each year. 
Um, so they kind of, the special reports kind of look at the latest developments um, in physics in China. Um, and usually in the past, that's involved one of the journalists, usually me, traveling to China and uh, reporting from the ground, like talking to researchers, um, policymakers about the latest developments. Of course, like the coronavirus pandemic has kind of put a stop to travel. So um, in the last few years, that's kind of um, been put to a stop. But we still have a network of um, journalists on the ground in China who have kind of helped us to, you know, put together this this year's special report. So as you mentioned, this um, this special report kind of focuses on space, and, that, and that's for a number of reasons, mostly because of the developments in space that have happened in the past year that China have really pushed. Um, so one is the construction of um, its first fully-fledged space station. Um, this is the China Space Station. And the first kind of elements of that were being kind of put, have been put together earlier this year and then the first um they sent the first astronauts to the space station to kind of continue that development and this is set to be complete next year so that'll be kind of the end of 2022 will be when it'll be a complete um but then this this really marks the um china's first kind of you know permanent presence in space and um, so they'll kind of have a rotation of um astronauts every six months or so so it's kind of a big deal, and it's kind of, in some sense, kind of gone under the radar a little bit. I don't think there's like been too much about it in, t- in terms of you know the international media, etc. Um, but it's certainly a That's big right. development yeah. in terms of the the space uh, technology program for sure. Should we see this as a, as a rival to the International Space Station? Is it is it going to be that big, or is it is it sort of a smaller space station? Um, so the China Space Station is about it's about 100 tons in that's in terms of its kind of total weight of what it will be when it's all complete and it'll consist of three kind of separate main building blocks. The main one at its heart is a, a 16 meter long um, core module, and then that's already actually existing up there at this moment in time. And then later um, this year and next year, then they'll kind of connect two um, 14 meter long uh, modules to that one. So yeah, this is kind of, in, in some sense, it is a rival to the International Space Station. Of course, the International Space Station itself um, isn't planned to go on forever. That's kind of, I think it's like the mid-2020s is when um, a decision will be made on whether it's kind of prolonged or, you know, kind of ended. Um, so we'll have to see how, what comes after that in terms of, you know, from the US, whether that, whether it goes private potentially, um, you know, that's kind of decisions that have to be made there. But yeah, certainly in terms of, Chinese uh, presence in space. This is kind of going to be ongoing now for the coming decade, decade um, and beyond the lifetime of the International Space Station. And and that's not China's only uh, presence in space. Um, there are missions um, to the Moon and Mars. Um, is the country focusing on exploring the solar system? Is that uh, is that a goal of China? Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I mentioned before, in terms of this year's briefing being focused on space, um, you know, one of the aspects is the space station. But the other aspects that have really been pushed by China this year is in terms of its lunar um, exploration. So earlier this year, the Changi 5 lunar probe that returned samples from the moon back to Earth. So that was kind of a first for China in terms of doing that. And then, yeah, earlier this year was another spectacular success. Um, and that was the landing of the Zurong rover on Mars, which is that put China as long as a second nation 
um, to ever successfully land a probe on on Mars, which is quite kind of a, a spectacular feat for a for a nation that's only been you know doing this for kind of a few decades or so. Definitely, yeah. So, Michael, the briefing has a fascinating interview with the Italian astrophysicist Roberto Soria, who is based at the University of Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing. Is it becoming more common for Western physicists to seek opportunities in China? Yes, that's right. I mean, in this in this China briefing, yeah, we've got um, it's not just about space, but we also have some articles about the Chinese Beijing. Graphing Institute as well. That's uh, a Q and A there with the head of the Chinese Beijing Graphing Institute, and then also as you mentioned, the uh, interview with Roberto Soria. Yeah, he's from originally from Italy. Um, he went to um, Australia and then ended up in China. And he was actually due in China during the coronavirus pandemic. So we kind of interviewed him, um, you know, about his and he kind of explains about his um, experiences there during the pandemic, but also kind of talks about you know, some of the challenges and also some of the opportunities of working in China. So certainly in terms of opportunities, as we've mentioned, there's so much, so many things are going on in China in terms of new facilities and, and research programs that there are, you know, huge amounts of opportunity for researchers from abroad, you know, to, to contribute to those programs. Um, but on top of that, then there are also challenges in terms of specifically language, language issues, being able to, you know, attend conferences which you know basically are in mandarin so that you know he can't kind of keep up with latest developments and then kind of i guess kind of feeling that kind of as being an outsider um so certainly a lot of challenges in terms of uh foreign researchers going to china i think in the past a lot of researchers would have um had had kind of a joint appointment with the home institution and then with the chinese university that's kind of um was kind of a popular um, way of kind of collaborating with Chinese institutions. Um, but in terms of Roberto Sari, you know, he actually permanently moved to China. Um, and that's not something you see so much. You see a lot more people having these joint appointments rather than being permanent researchers. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting, um, an in- interesting interview about you know, his views on, on Chinese science and, and how it differs from, uh, from the West. And, and also, yeah, his hiking expeditions during the coronavirus pandemic, um, you know, when, when the cities were in lockdown. Yeah, it, it was a very interesting article. It, it made me think immediately that um, perhaps if you're a, a, a sort of an early career physicist, you, you might seriously consider uh, learning Chinese, learning Mandarin to, uh, to further your career. Yeah, that's right. You might think it's kind of the best, the best time in your career, maybe when you're in your early career development, that it might be a good time to turn to head to China and then learn, you know, certain way from opportunities in terms of funding, you know, there's a huge, huge, huge amount of opportunities there. So yeah, for anyone who's thinking about their next career step, maybe China is the, is the one for them. Yeah, definitely. Because, um, well, for, I suppose what we see in the scientific literature and also in terms of uh, uh, all these amazing facilities being built, there's going to be more and more opportunities in China. That's for sure. You can read an electronic version of our China briefing on the Physics World app, which is available for iOS, Android, and web browsers. For more information, click on the Magazines tab on the Physics World website. Thanks for being on the podcast, Michael. Thanks, Hamish. Nuclear fusion reactors could provide us with vast amounts of clean energy at least in principle. 
There remain, however, significant challenges that must be overcome before we can build practical facilities. These problems would be solved in part by the development of a range of new materials, which will probably include superconductors. I'm joined down the line from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology by Erica Salazar, who is developing superconducting magnets for future fusion reactors. Hi, Erica. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. It's good to be here. So, Erica, can you, can you give us a simple description of a fusion reactor and the role that's played by electromagnets? Sure. Well, maybe to take a step back, uh, fusion energy itself is a nuclear reaction where you're combining very light atoms, uh, such as hydrogen, to form uh, heavier atoms like helium, and you get a lot of energy and also a neutron out of this process. So this is why fusion energy is, is really a, uh, an exciting type of energy source for us. And, and in fact, it actually powers our sun and our stars. So um, our sun is one big ball of a fusion energy reaction itself. But, you know, unfortunately, on Earth, we don't have the large gravitational forces that the sun has that enable to apply these high pressures on the fusion energy reactions. So we have to use something else. And so we use magnets. Um, so the neat thing about uh, fusion energy, it makes up a plasma. So a plasma, you can kind of think about it as a hot ionized gas. It's really hot. So the electrons um, are essentially stripped away from the atoms. So you have these negatively charged particles, you have these positively charged particles, this soup of like plasma fusion energy reaction. And uh, the same way that you can control electrons with magnetic fields, uh, for example, through a transformer, um, or, you know, you run the current through a wire, you create a magnetic field, you can use magnetic field from large magnets to actually control and force you know, the, the plasma into like certain shapes as you want or induce heating in a plasma. So because on Earth, the plasma is very hot, it's hundreds of millions of degrees, uh, we don't want it to, uh, we want to be able to keep uh, the heat inside of the, the fusion energy uh, plasma, and we can do that with these really large magnets. And so one type of fusion design that does it is called a tokamak. So a tokamak is made up of uh, large magnets that uh, kind of control, form the plasma, and thermally insulate it as well. So, Erica, what are the benefits of using uh, superconducting magnets and, and specifically high temperature superconducting magnets um, instead of uh, conventional conductors like copper? Right. That's a that's a great question. So so a, a normal conductor like copper or aluminum, uh, it has a finite amount of resistance. So uh, as many people might know, there's something called Ohm's law, which kind of describes the physical phenomena of, of a normal conductor. So if I put a certain amount of current inside of a copper wire, uh, because it has a given resistance, you're going to see a differential voltage measured across this copper wire. So, and, and, and so you're also dissipating energy in this resistance. So you can also generate what we call dual heating. So you're generating heating from putting this uh, current in this normal conductor. A superconductor, on the other hand, is a special type of material that when it's operating under certain conditions, uh, has zero resistivity. So it's really neat. So you can put a bunch of current through a superconductor and you see zero voltage rise. You see zero energy dissipation theoretically. Um, so you have no ohmic heating. Uh, so it's good in the sense of uh, one, you're not losing any energy in the process. Uh, so, you know, in terms of going back to fusion uh, devices, 
one, it, it's significantly less energy or electricity it's required to power superconducting magnets. Uh, and also you can operate at longer times as well. So for example, sometimes the limitations of operating at really high currents and high fields on a copper conductor is the amount of heating that the copper conductor will see. You don't want to overheat and uh, damage your, your copper magnet, which can be easily done. Um, a superconductor, on the other hand, when it is superconducting, uh, you're not generating any heat from the process. So you can really run it as, as long as you want, which is uh, very, very convenient and an exciting type of technology to use. Um, so I think you mentioned uh, the high temperature superconductors as well. Uh, so there's different type of superconducting materials. Um, previously, they're probably the, the more conventional superconductor that's used is called a low temperature superconductor, such as niobium titanium or niobium 310. Um, and those were discovered around in the 60s. So ITER, which is this uh, experimental fusion device that's currently under construction in southern France. It's, it's actually a, it's an amazing uh, international consortium of multiple different governments and research institutions and countries coming together to, to build this, this one experimental fusion device. Um, they use low temperature superconductors because back in the time of its design, that was the only type of device that was um, or type of superconducting material that existed. Uh, however, since then, about late 80s, there's a new type of superconductor called high temperature superconductors, which, as the name you know, uh, uh, presents, can operate at higher temperatures. So to give an idea of the temperature, so low temperature superconductors typically have to operate around 5 Kelvin. So this is minus 270 degrees Celsius or minus 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Very, very cold. So you have to use liquid helium temperatures. Uh, high temperature superconductors have the capability of operating well above that. So above liquid nitrogen temperatures even, which is 77 Kelvin or minus 320 Fahrenheit. Uh, so you, you have this like boost of, you know, larger operating range, but also operating conditions as well. So for high temperature superconductors, if you uh, even operate at lower temperatures than like liquid nitrogen temperatures I mentioned, you can operate at sig like orders of magnitude higher current densities compared to low temperature superconductors. So what that really means is you can you can really operate higher magnetic fields, higher current densities, um, which allow you to effectively shrink down the size of your tokamak device. So I can have a smaller tokamak device because I have significantly higher magnetic fields, um, and this really has a big boost on you know the cost of the device design, the uh, speed at which you can uh, build it. So, um, so this is kind of like where it gets interesting for future uh, tokamak device designs. Um, you know, the iterations after Eater uh, would be would be neat to to look into or to consider this new type of superconductor. And and I would imagine that that there's some some challenges in in developing high temperature superconductors for 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 use in in fusion reactors. I, I suppose that you you have to make materials that you can actually turn into wires and uh, and that sort of thing and then there's the i suppose the real challenge of 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 keeping things cold and um you know because i think bad things can happen <laughs> if uh, if a superconducting <laughs> magnet uh suddenly uh, isn't cold anymore so what what are the the challenges that you face in in developing these materials yeah absolutely um i would say in terms of the material itself of the superconductor. So um, 
in terms of HTS, um, it's, it's uses a rare earth barium copper oxide type of material. It has a very specific manufacturing process, deposition, epitaxial, uh, <laughs> uh, process that is used. And probably one of the biggest manufacturing limitations on that would be just, can we churn out enough superconductor actually to build these uh, large magnets in terms of the quality? Other type of high temperature superconducting magnet applications, such as MRI, magnetic resonance imager, uh, imaging systems, or NMRs, nuclear magnetic resonance spectrometers, uh, they require a higher quality of HTS because of the uh, intense tolerances and, and specifications on the magnetic fields that are required um, for fusion devices because they're significantly larger than you know MRIs or NMRs. Uh, the, the, the quality requirements are lower. So uh, that that's good from a manufacturing point of view of the of the material. Um, you mentioned about cooling, and now you know let's engineer a magnet together. Uh, yeah, there's other constraints as well. So, I like I mentioned before, a superconductor is only superconducting when it's operating under certain conditions, and you hit you hit it right on the head in terms of temperature. So that's that's one uh, parameter that matters. Um, there's really three. So there's temperature, there's the operating current and the magnetic field that it sees. So uh, one, you wanna make sure that your superconductors do stay underneath a critical temperature. And so for LTS, that's gonna be five Kelvin HTS. Uh, it kind of depends on where you're, op- where you're operating in terms of the current densities and magnetic fields. Because you wanna generate these really high magnetic fields, right? Um, you're, you're also inducing Lorentz loads. And, and so basically it's, it's a force that's applied when you have current within a magnetic field. And so because of that, you have high stresses. So the magnets that you want to build, you one, you want to build them so you can actively cool it. So you want to have a cryogenic fluid, whether it's liquid helium, for example, or supercritical helium. Uh, and then you want to be able to structurally support your magnet because it's seeing all, a lot of these electromagnetic forces on it. So those are definitely engineering challenges that has to be dealt with in terms of uh, designing a superconducting magnet in a complex uh, fusion system. And so you're you're particularly interested in what sounds to me like a, a really scary process called the, the the quenching of a magnet. And I think this occurs when some part of the coil that's carrying the current n- is no longer superconducting, and uh, and things can go can go very wrong um, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, c- can you d- describe this this quenching process and why it's under why it's important to understand it and and to be able to control it? Right. Yeah. So uh, very good point. Uh, so a quench is, or a quench event is uh, an event in which a superconductor loses its superconductivity. So if it starts to exceed those critical pre- operating conditions, like I mentioned, you know, temperature, current density, or magnetic field, it'll transition to become a normal conductor. So that means it's becoming resistive. So if you imagine you have all of this current going to a tiny little superconductor, or you know, going to a bunch of little superconductors, you now have, a, and, and, and if the superconductor then becomes resistive, you have a lot of current and a lot of joule heating being generated in a small amount of material. So you want to be able to design your magnet. So one, for the expected you know, heat loads that might occur and during operation that you can, that the magnet can handle it. So no damage will happen. However, Sometimes, you know, Murphy's Law <laughs> comes into play. There's sometimes off-normal events can occur where you might have too much uh, uh, generated heat load. So just, just, just to give an idea, you can have uh, heat loads go into your magnet from 
there's a, something called AC losses. So you have changing magnetic fields because you have other magnets around in a tokamak. You have a plasma that's kind of generating changing magnetic fields. And so that actually causes a, a volumetric heating in the cable conductor. So ideally, you design it so it can be able to you know, withstand all those heat loads. But maybe there's abnormally something goes awry and you have more heat loading. Or you could also have some uh, radiation heat flux as well, just from the, the fusion has uh, neutrons, basically, uh, neutron heating. And, uh, or you could have some uh, you know, failure modes happen, like maybe you have loss of coolant flow. So there's, there's scenarios where you really hope doesn't happen, but if it does, it could cause uh, a quench event, which, which, like I mentioned before, you're now generating a lot of dual heating in a smallish amount of conductor. So what could happen is you could damage your magnet, it, you could melt it, you could cause cracking in terms of the differences of thermal expansion of the material. And ultimately, that's not good for the overall system because you have to essentially shut down your your hopefully fusion power plant at this point. Um, so you want to avoid that. And one way of doing it is by uh, having a quench detection and protection system. The idea is that you have a quench detection system that can detect when a quench event is occurring, like right at the beginning. And then you can protect your magnet uh, as in like, for example, a way to dump all of the energy or current out of your magnet into like a resistor bank, for example. So you prevent any damage from occurring. So instead of shutting down your power plant for you know permanent damage reasons, you're only temporarily shutting it down uh, for a very short amount of time and then you can ramp it up again. So that, those are kind of the systems. And there's many different types of quench detection uh, systems out there. So probably the conventional ones are voltage-based. So uh, as you can remember, when a superconductor starts becoming resistive, that means it's generating a voltage. Uh, so you can actually measure the voltage across your system. Um, there's And now there's a bunch of other different uh, types of quench detection systems out there. And that's actually what a lot of my research is on too, is on what are alternative types. Because um, for example, in a fusion environment, um, you could have uh, electromagnetically induced noise from the plasma and other magnets nearby that actually kind of put in a voltage background noise. So you don't really know, is this voltage reading from a quench event or is it from something else? So for example, I'm looking into fiber optics too. Uh, fiber optics can measure temperature in addition to strain. And so that they're immune to these electromagnetically induced noise. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really a, a really fun, exciting industry or, or research field to be in, in terms of investigating these failure modes and dynamics of magnets. Now, now you mentioned earlier that ITER, the project that's, that's being built in the south of France at the moment, w- will not use high temperature superconductors. Um, so w- when can we expect high temperature superconductors to be, uh, to be used in, in fusion reactors? Is there a next generation machine that's, uh, that's being designed at the moment? Yeah, uh, this is really an exciting time for fusion energy and high temperature superconductors uh, for both of the, of the technologies. Uh, so there's Tokamak Energy is creating uh, a spherical tokamak design using HTS and Commonwealth Fusion Systems uh, is also using uh, HTS for building a tokamak uh, design as well. Uh, so a lot of my, my research actually collaborates with, with uh, CFS or Commonwealth Fusion Systems. Uh, so it's it's really exciting time to see you know 
these new startups and, and research projects really trying to uh, push the timeline on getting fusion energy on our, on our grid as soon as possible. And, and one way of doing that is using these high temperature superconductors, because like I mentioned before, you can make the fusion device smaller, ultimately lower cost and faster to build. That's, the, that's really the big goal. Well, that's, that's great, Erica. It sounds like a, a really exciting field to be in. Um, if you'd like to learn more about this topic, the Institute of Physics Publishing's journal Superconducting Science and Technology has just hosted a webinar about the use of superconductors in fusion. It's called SUST, Superconductors for Fusion Webinar. And I'll put a link in the notes for this webinar on the Physics World website. Thanks for joining me today, Erica. Thanks so much. It was, it was great talking to you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Erica Salazar and Michael Banks for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. Please join us again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which is called We're All Going on a Geeky Holiday. Host Andrew Gluster meets three people who are drawn to geeky holiday destinations. There's a radiation researcher who sings the praises of a vacation in Chernobyl, a yoga instructor who travels the world to experience solar eclipses, and a nutritional psychologist who recommends a visit to the Marconi Center in Cornwall. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World.